Hello and welcome to Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. We are your hosts, Vidas Pinkavichus and Oshamut Zeta Pinkavichin. We've been mastering secrets of organ playing for more than 20 years and sharing them on this blog since 2011. On this show, which we create from our home in Vilnius, Lithuania, we strive to help you grow in every area of organ playing, including practice, technique, repertoire, sight reading, hymn playing, improvisation, composition, music theory, harmony, and many others. Our hope is to help you become a complete musician, or what we call as total organist, a program which we have created to help you reach your dreams faster than you would do on your own. If you are new here, we invite you to subscribe to receive free updates of this blog at organduo.lt. By subscribing, you will also receive free video on how to master any organ composition and 10-day organ playing mini course. And now let's go to the podcast for today. So, I'm here in St. John's Church in Vilnius uh, with uh, Jonathan Embry, organist uh, from United States of America and recently graduated from McGill University in Canada. He he had an interesting adventure in the Baltics. Uh, I remember going to his recital at Vilnius Cathedral about a week or more ago, but then afterwards he went to other places to, to play in Lithuania, and then he go, went to Russia, to Kaliningrad, uh, to play, and then came back. So today is, uh, is Monday, September the 2nd, 2019, and we're starting our conversation. This is podcast number 491. And I'm really delighted, Jonathan, that we can meet face to face. And uh, uh, so I'm going to just uh, congratulate you uh, on this wonderful occasion. Thank you so much and welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Vitas. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. And it was a great pleasure for me to play in your country, Lithuania. It was a tremendous experience for me to get to become acquainted with these instruments and especially the people. The audiences were wonderful and very kind. I'm sure you tried uh, quite a few instruments here. Which one was your most most favorite, if I can ask? Because it's difficult to to say favorite when there are so many interesting and different instruments, right? Yes, there was um, two instruments that really moved me. Mm-hmm. The organ in Mariupolé. Mm-hmm which is a fairly modern instrument, 2004, I believe, was when it was completed, and the historic instrument in the Kaunas uh, Cathedral. Both of those instruments I uh, really resonated with, and it was a joy to play on them. They both had their unique qualities. The one in Mariupolé worked very well for all of the repertoire I played. It was It's in a French style, but it, it does everything very well. The organ in Kaunas is a romantic instrument, and it, so the, the pieces that I played that were more in the romantic style really sung. The dissonances were beautiful. Uh, I played the Rheinberger mm-hmm. Sonata Number no. 4, the first movement, and the, just the dissonances in that were just so painful, yet so beautiful at the same time. 
And of course, you play the same Rheinberger at the Cathedral of Vilnius. Can yes. you compare those two experiences? Yes. In, in Vilnius, while it is a very fine instrument, the sounds are very thin since it was built in the neo-baroque style and while they're beautiful it didn't give the gravitas that this particular piece needs it's a very dramatic and struggling piece but these foundation stops and countless just added so much depth and beauty mm -hmm. to it you know guys uh, when we went to dinner after Jonathan's recital at Vilnius Cathedral, he told me that uh, his favorite composers are from basically North Germany, from Hamburg and, and uh, yeah, basically 17th century North German music, most likely uh, Scheidemann and Weckmann. And he played two verses from As Is Das Heil by, by Matthias Weckmann those very interesting or ornate movements, the six verses, which is probably very long choral fantasia in, in six parts, I think. Uh, and then the last uh, ultimus, septimus and ultimus uh, versus from the same uh, as Heil cycle, cycle, where you have a double pedal and the choral tune is in the right foot. Right, so he, when when Jonathan visited uh, St. John's Church just uh, a moment ago, and before we started conversation, he tried out this instrument and played the, quite a few verses of this Weckmann uh, uh, cycle, and uh, I'm curious to know what you think about suitability of this instrument for this music. Um, well, the organ here at St. John's, I think, would suit this music very well. It has a lot of the right type of stops, It has, and it has the power to play the last verse, which has six voices all going at the same time. And this Vekman cycle is a sermon in sound. It's meant to preach... The, the word of God, and that's what Beckmann's intention was, because in Hamburg at this time, that was very important to all of the composers who were writing chorale cycles. The experience of playing this piece in the churches in Lithuania, I felt that more so that the organ is a sacred instrument from this experience. I look at the beautiful, ornate altar in St. John's Church and the other altars that I saw throughout Lithuania, very ornate, very beautiful. Um, and I can hear the same ornate beauty in Esses das Heil, especially in the sixth verse where all these different voices are going on. It's very similar to the altar in the Church of the Holy Spirit here in Vilnius. It's very ornate. There's angels, there's saints, there's Christ on the cross, there's the Holy Spirit, there's the Father, and all of this utopia of heaven is going on, and all of these different voices, or all these different things are going on, which relate to the different voices in Esses das Heil, and it's just this beautiful coming, or this beautiful coming together of the everything in heaven is kind of how I feel that this piece works. At the Holy Ghost Church, you might have seen this famous Casparini organ, which is now under restoration, uh, kind of stuck in, in many years. But 
nevertheless, the organ itself fits beautifully inside the church. And uh, as many of you know, uh, the replica has been built at uh, St. Christ Church, uh, Christ Church Cathedral, uh, I think, in, uh, in Rochester, New York. But it's not cathedral, I think it's just Christ Church in Rochester. So uh, they built a replica, but, uh, but didn't, of course, have the, the opportunity to add all the ornaments of the, of the organ, carvings and, uh, and other Baroque elements. So, of course, in the original environment, this organ might, might look much different. Um, so, I just hope that in the future you can come back and play Casparini organ as well. So, Jonathan, it's really interesting to talk to you and our listeners from 89 countries are probably wondering about the story. How you first fell in love with the organ? Can you share it? Yes. Oh, I grew up in a very small community in Maine, which is in the east part of the United States, and I went to a Catholic school there. During the week, we would go to Mass, and I would see the organ in the loft. They, would, they never played it during the daily Mass, but I would see it, and I always was impressed with it visually. And then when I was a little bit older, there was a concert in the Portland City Hall. There's a big Austin instrument there, a very huge instrument. And while you know, I went to this Christmas concert there, and the organist was warming up, and I was invited on stage by one of the ushers, and I could just feel the vibrations going through me, and you could you not only see the beautiful instrument and hear the sounds, but you can also feel it through you. Mm -hmm. And the organ is one of the only instruments, I believe, that has that. I mean, we can, we can sort of, with other instruments, their visual appeal is nice, but it is not the same as something that is beautiful, that has a beautiful architecture of its own. And the power of the organ just resonates through your entire body, especially in these beautiful reverberant churches in Europe. And it just it, it just fills you. Mm -hmm. True. Um, in our environment, uh, even noises sound beautiful. Like like today, uh, uh, underneath us in, in the nave, there is a group of tourists, obviously talking about some of the uh, uh, historical interesting things of this church. And also at the same time, there is there are some workers working with metal uh, either outside the church or somewhere in the corner and you can hear the, the, the noises but those noises reverberate in the room and spread around and they make sort of harmony you know uh, and on top of that we are talking too so uh, it's all combined and unified uh, in the organ loft wonderful I think uh, in those occasions when you feel the power of the organ vibrations as you say you can even lie down on the floor and hear not hear but feel the, those vibrations physically with your body yes and uh, an interesting story to go off of that in in studio class at McGill Hansola Erickson 
encouraged us to get up and walk around while others were performing so that we could feel and experience the instrument in different ways, not just sitting in one spot, but to go to the side and experience the sound and then walk around the, the church and just experience it in different ways. Mm -hmm. I wonder if, uh, if uh, you had the possibility to hear Hansola play yes. and walk around too. Oh, I did, no, I did not have the opportunity to walk around since I, he didn't play in the studio classes, but I did hear him play in the Maison Symphonique in Montreal. He was here a number of years ago, maybe four years ago, uh, at St. John's Church. He played, I wonder if he played the recital. Yes, he played the recital here. And also taught a master class um, at a different organ, maybe at the cathedral, I think. And later, I remember to talking with him on the podcast interview too, which you heard later on, right? Can yes. you share the story of how how you came to know Secrets of Organ Playing podcasts? Yes, um, before I chose McGill as my school to study or to continue studying doctorate. Or, sorry. To, before I um, decided which school to study for my doctorate, I did some research on the teachers, and I came across Vitas's podcast interview with uh, Hanzola, and was very impressed by Hanzola's answers, and I thought that it would be someone very good to study with. He um, he was one of the first uh, people whom I interviewed maybe in the first 10 group uh, four years ago and um, the other few were judges for, for the Cirlonis International Organ Competition here Sophie Veronique Kochefer Chopulian from Paris and Michael Bauer from University of Kansas and um, they both were guests on the podcast as well um, we met physically at, at the hotel, their hotel mm -hmm. where they were staying at the time and it was very interesting to talk to him to them um, so Jonathan you are now joining a group of international experts who were talking of, of, uh, around, from around the globe on various aspects of organ, play, organ playing so and each of them had their you know particular area of interest, right, or expertise. Uh, if you had to choose one, what what uh, what uh, organ, let's say, historical period you would uh, take with you to the uninhabited island? Um, well, there is two, I would say. Two. Or they right. go together, they connect. Um, it would be 17th century North German music, particularly from the Hamburg School, um, as you mentioned at the beginning, yeah. but also music of the Orgelbewegung that is connected to choral music. My research and dissertation was focused on the music of Hugo Dissler and how his choral music and organ music overlap both in their theological purpose and in their compositional language. 
in a similar way that the choral music and organ music of the 17th century in Hamburg overlapped. Mm-hmm. True, and it's interesting. You played uh, the same organ that Hugo uh, Dister played in Hamburg as well, right? In the, yes, in Lübeck, the Stellwagen at the... Oh, you yeah. mean in Lübeck, yes. Yes, Stellwagen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the Jacobi Kerch. I was very fortunate to spend time there in the evening performing the choral music and the organ music using stops that Dissler suggests in his music in his partita on Nuncom de Haydn Highland. He is very specific about registrations and what he would use at the organ at San Jacobi. So I experimented using those registrations with his choral music and seeing what the result was, and the result was a very vocal sound. The sounds at San Jacobi are very vocal. Unlike the organs that came out of the Orgelbewegung, which tend to be very bright and can be very harsh, the instrument that he was connected with was very, very round and delicate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you arranged organ music by Disler on the organ, to be played on the organ. How that works? How, uh, how did you find it? Uh, does it fit the instrument? It fit perfectly. I didn't change anything in the music. I arranged the the Zinget den Herrn from his uh, Opus 12. It's a collection of nine motets, as well as his uh, choral partita on Esses Stein Rose in Strungen. Mm-hmm. In Sprungen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we know what you mean. We know, yeah. Um, and um, I took this music and basically just put the uh, soprano alto in the right hand, the tenor in the left hand, and in the bass, the, or in the pedal of the bass, and it transitioned perfectly. And there were striking similarities between the choral music and the organ music. In the beginning of Zinget and Hern, there is octave. There, the tenor and bass are singing in octaves, and this was very interesting to me because in the in Vakadauf, uh, the Takata, there's a passage where the bass and tenor are playing in octaves, and one would think that well, we just couple it to the pedal and be fine, but because he is thinking of the voices as being independent, and the same way as a choir, um, that's why he didn't couple. You know, every interest and every passion has a turning point, I think, uh, for a person. Um, for example, at one point, I was, uh, I fell in love with the music of Hindemith, which is a little bit later than Distler, right? Uh, turn of the century, uh, mm-hmm. in the middle of the 19th, uh, 20th century, maybe. But he also created in the 20s too uh, some early music as well so he, he lived for a long time and uh, Distler might have lived long enough if if, 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 if it wasn't for Nazis right, a victim of, of, of yes. the First World War uh, or Second World War the Second World second, War second, yeah. um, but it's interesting he thought he was drafted to the army Yes, well, he was drafted. Um, he did receive, he was actually drafted three times. Uh-huh. He 
um, he was granted permission to not join the first two times because of his colleagues in Stuttgart and colleagues in Berlin. However, the last time he received his draft notice, he couldn't take it anymore because of the stresses that were going on. Ever since the Nazis took, gained power in Germany, it hurt Dissler's um, musical aspirations. He was very, very passionate about sacred music. That was something that was extremely important to him. And it brought him a sense of comfort. Mm -hmm. And if we look at his output of music, he wrote most most of his sacred music while he was working in Lübeck. And very few pieces in Stuttgart where he was encouraged not to write sacred music because of the political situation, they felt the, that sacred music and music for the church wasn't appropriate because it didn't serve the party. So he didn't write any sacred pieces while in Stuttgart and even had a choir group shut down. He was going to perform the one of the Bach Passions and the the university decided to have a concert of secular music at the same time as his concert of sacred music, mm -hmm. and it shut it down. And in Berlin, he was working at the cathedral, teaching the boys' choir, and the Hitler Youth group decided to have their meetings at the same time as his boys' choir, and he wrote to the Ministry of Culture saying, could you please change it? To, uh, which he, when his response, the response from them was, well, do secular music with the boys and keep your sacred music to yourself. Mm -hmm. They were very much against it, and it was something that was very dear to him. And that that combined with the draft notice and watching his friends disappear, um, his two closest friends while he was at Santikovi. One of them, Bruno Brunsnik, was drafted into the army, and the other, Pastor Kuh, uh, who was um, in charge of Santikovi, was banned from Lubeck. So he had he was losing his friends, and he just finally couldn't take it anymore. And he played, he had a house organ that was built for him by Paulute and he played um, the Leingott Trio, and that was the last piece he played. He went out for a walk, and then he committed suicide on November 1st. Sad story. Yes. It is. Um, um, when, you, when you study the music of, of um, this club, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Um, when I study the music, the first thing that comes to my mind is thinking, how would this sound if a choir sang it? Mm -hmm. How would how does how is this vocal music? And which leads me to believe that the trio sonata is in fact a vocal motet for three voices because when he first started out at San Jacobi, he wrote small trios 
for the boys' choir there, they were they weren't very strong, so I wrote these simple little trios, and these trios are remarkably similar in style to the trio sonata. Now the trio sonata is is very hard; it's significantly harder. But you can see the the, the sort of the genesis of this piece coming from these small trios. Mm-hmm. And he and in the trio sonata, he's using the same vocal techniques that he uses in his choral music. And this was written at a time in Stuttgart where he was not really encouraged to write sacred music. So I have a hypothesis that this trio sonata was a way for him to still write sacred music because of his writings on the organ. He believes that the organ is a sacred instrument and that it cannot be anything else. Mm-hmm. That he thinks that some of these more romantic organs and that are playing theatrical type music are not really organs, that an organ must be for the church. And since I, he believes this, I feel that um, he this is reflected in his composing. Mm-hmm. So to him, music for the organ is sacred by the nature. I wonder if if uh, if you study like a trio sonata, um, can you even think maybe he he had some words uh, in mind which he later erased? It is very possible. There are passages where he could have words placed in it. There are some passages where it is a bit more elaborate. For a human to sing, however, there are things that are close to this level of virtuosity in Monteverdi, and um, and if you think of the organ as a celestial choir or a choir of the angels, something that's unhuman, otherworldly, that would be able to do passages that are a bit more virtu or a bit don't really know how to say, but a bit ones that would be difficult for a human to sing but have the traces of a human if that makes sense yeah origin is vocal of course and and then uh, style maybe could could be instrumental you know uh, so wonderful and what do you find um, challenging when you study music of Bistler what is particularly problematic that you find I think that what is very challenging about his music is the rhythm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is very interested in complicated rhythms and independence of parts. The the organ works are very challenging to play, despite they may they may look not too difficult in terms of chromaticism. They're not terribly chromatic, but the independence of the voices and they cross, especially in the fugue of Bacchus as well as keeping the rhythmic integrity or keep keeping the rhythmic integrity and the independence of the lines are the hardest challenges of playing Bistler. Do you have to subdivide small note values in order to play them correctly? Yes, I when, when I begin playing this music I always subdivide and then gradually get into big beats thinking of a toctus in the same way one would play music of Scheidemann and Beckmann you're thinking large beats when uh, when you discover those large beats um, do you have to 
in your mind uh, conduct like a conductor would do uh, keep keep the pulse keep the beat tactus flowing in order not to slow down later on mm-hmm. how, how do you achieve that um, flow, this flow what I think of and my one of my former teachers uh, Craig Kramer suggests is thinking of wrist motion because if your wrist is sort of in the time you will stay in the time as well and I think of sort of like a tick you have like this big this like a wheel and it hits the bottom and it ticks and then it comes up to the top and then it comes down and it ticks and it gets energy as it heads up to the top and I feel that in when playing music that requires a large tactus like that, that it, it, it needs energy to keep going forwards. And it's never ending, yes, you have to push it forward with your mind. Mm-hmm. But it's also quite liberating, I feel, when you, when you have a large tactus because you can be more flowing and free within the, the, the tactus as long as you land at the the right part at the end, you can be more elastic. Mm-hmm. And, um, Do you emphasize the strong beats this way? Yes. Uh, holding on on them? Just also a them? little bit, just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, thinking more horizontally than vertically. Um, I feel that a lot of people look at early music vertically, like everything is going down. And it gives this sort of heavy feeling, not in the sense of gravitas heavy, but in just like heavy. Mm-hmm. But if, if we think of this music, like vocal music, where it's going horizontally, it adds a more flowing element, I feel. Do you apply the same principle in discourse music as in, as in early music? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. I still think of the idea of flowing and more about the voices moving horizontally than vertically, because Disler himself is not terribly interested in the harmonies. The harmonies are second to the melodic ideas and how the voices are interacting, similarly to how they work in Scheidemann and Beckmann and most of the orally choral music. They were more concerned with how the voices interacted. which creates the harmony rather than the harmony comes first and the voices have to fit. Now, mm-hmm. of course, there are rules and counterpoint that result in the, the beautiful harmonies, but it's more about how the voices are interacting. Mm-hmm. True. Um, I would even presume you could use articulate touch with Distler's music. Yes, I... To some degree. Yes, I, well, I advocate playing it in the typical or in ordinary Baroque touch. Mm-hmm with a bit of, or I would say smooth, but not legato and definitely not um, very detached. Like a lot of people think that neo-baroque and neoclassical music should be played because of how the organs sound. I mean, when we hear the neo-baroque organs with this harshness, we think that, well, well, this is the harshness, we should play it harsh. So, like in Bacchadauf, you have the very beautiful uh, melodic lines, like 
You can think of it very flowing like that, or you can go like with all the symbols and all that harshness. Um, so I think that smoothing it out, thinking of how to make it sound vocal, adds such life to this music. Obviously, if you sing it yourself, each line, you know, while you're playing or while you're studying mentally, it, it does help. Yes, I've done that. I did that with SSDAS Heil, and I've done it with the Distler pieces. Mm -hmm. And it it, add, it really helps because you, you understand all the voices and how they are working together. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, when uh, we're finished this when we finish this conversation and the next morning you have to fly home, right? Yes. Uh, back to... Back to where? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm flying to Montreal uh -huh. to head back to Syracuse, New York. I see. Is that your church? Yes. Mm -hmm. In Syracuse. Alright, so tell us more a little bit about your current work that you do. So right now I'm... Uh, working as the director of music at Most Holy Rosary Church in Syracuse, New York. I am in charge of the music for the liturgy, directing the choir, and I play the organ for the Saturday vigil and three services on Sunday. Um, also at this position, I am in charge of a recital series where we have had 12 very successful concerts with international artists and the music life at the church is starting to grow and the congregation is really supportive and the priest is very supportive of my musical projects. One project that I'm working on outside of the church is a duo group with my friend Teresa Chen who is a pianist. We arrange piano concertos and big band music for the organ and I'll play the orchestral part and she'll play the piano part mm -hmm. as well. So I have this project that I'm working on. I also am working on composition. I write choral music and organ music and I will continue to work on that as well as my research while I'm working at the church. Interesting. You mentioned uh, you mentioned uh, your compositions. I've heard uh, your rhapsody number one at Vilnius Cathedral, and I thought, considering this instrument, it it fit perfectly. And uh, can you tell a little bit how your process is when you compose? Thank you. And uh, um, I. I like to improvise, so I will do a lot of improvisation around an idea, and then once I get an idea, I begin to work with it and experiment with it over time, and then it eventually grows into the piece, and then I will begin writing it down and then polishing it even more. And so it's very important to me that I do write at the keyboard, which is something that some composers do not like. They say that writing at the keyboard is 
is a shortcut or that it's too much of a, is a cheating device. But the benefits of writing at the keyboard is that you can create music that is idiomatic to the instrument, that is comfortable to play, that may have May, that takes the specific like takes the organ into mind. We have a lot of music written now that is written away from the keyboard for, and the composer doesn't really know much about the organ. I think it's a big piano, and we get music that isn't really suitable for the instrument. And it's and it's interesting because the tradition of the. Uh, and the early music is a lot of improvisation, and some people believe that the music that was written down was guides for improvisation. So it's it's interesting just to see the, how things have changed. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed listening to your rhapsody, and partly because it felt like improvisation, right? I felt like uh, Jonathan first improvised this piece, maybe even recorded it, and then later transcribed it. Or even, even, I had this idea, maybe it's unfinished piece and he is creating in the moment, right now. <laughs> Some of it is a little bit of both. That um, piece was a very fresh piece. Um, I, it's very difficult for me to just write a piece. I have to be very inspired. And this Rhapsody was meant to be, it's a sort of image of the... St. Isaac Cathedral in St. Petersburg. The piece is supposed to represent the different bells and an Orthodox bell ringing the rhythm is very important and so I was trying to figure out how to write a piece for the organ that used this rhythmic idea and I even went to the point of trying to directly transcribe the bells and it just wasn't very successful on the organ so I decided to take Debussy's approach to the gamelan. When Debussy was inspired by gamelan, he took sort of the idea of it and then incorporated it to the piano, sort of made it fit well. So I took the orthodox bells and applied it in that same way. So the rhythmic pattern and sort of the A section, the form is A, B, A, B. The rhythms are based on the bells, where they're sort of starting at, they start, they speed up as the beat goes along. So I have eighth notes, and then on beat four, it's sixteenth notes. This is how the bells worked there, as well as having things on, on bells on different beats. So there's sort of, it's, there's a passage where it's three, in four, four, three plus, in eighth notes, um, three plus three plus two, while in the pedal it's um, two half notes so all these different rhythms are going on and then there's different rhythms in the right hand Um, in the middle section I was experimenting with the limitations of bells there's a part where the right hand is only playing F and D while the left hand is doing sort of a chant type um texture and I was seeing what I could do with the limitations that because bells you can't change keys you can't you you're stuck with the bells you have Mm -hmm. so I was trying different rhythmic ideas and then at the end and then the piece returns back to the A section with the more lively bells and then at the end this chant comes back 
with the bells in the hands doing sort of this figuration, which is the peals, the sort of the bells are just going off. And I've decided that that should be in graphic notation. And underneath it, the chant is the chant in sort of the Zemni Orthodox tradition, where there's a sort of introduction or an incipit by the bass, and then the tenor comes in in octave, so the left hand is doing that with the pedal, and the right hand is doing these the, these just bells are just ringing. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel that it because of the bell ringing and that I've observed in Russia, it feels that it's very... I wouldn't say random, but it's left up to chance. It's it's just what is feeling at the time, because when I was searching for written music, I couldn't find any. So I think that using graphic notation in this way, indicating which notes to play, helps to create this effect that of the bells ringing. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that's the piece. It's uh, so a lot of people, uh, organists. I mean, they stick to the repertoire and play what's written on the page. But you went to the path of creating your own music and improvising and composing. Why is that? What was the turning point? Um, I actually, my first musical love was composition. Mm-hmm. I always enjoyed improvising and just playing on the piano when I was younger. Um, I had difficulty, I have difficulties with my eyes, I have trouble seeing, and when I was younger it was hard to see the music that's improved since then, now, but it's, my my hearing has always been a bit stronger than my sight, so um, I began to focus, or I, when I was young, I was enjoyed improvising more and doing composition and arranging things that I liked to hear. When I and I noticed in your review, you mentioned that my music sounds like movie music in a in a good sense, mm-hmm. and I'm very I'm very happy to hear that. And um, other people have said the exact same thing. They've said that it sounds sort of has the essence of movie music or more probably more accurately video game music because uh-huh. when I was younger I enjoyed just by playing by ear arranging movie music and video games did songs. you play video games when, when you I was young younger? yes that leaves impression for a long time I guess for your own taste probably and your probably um, future preferences of repertoire and style uh, that's really interesting because there are some interesting and uh, quality video games mm-hmm. music which just needs to be resurrected mm-hmm. well it also some of them have some similarities to the north german music since it's based on the like the lines of the music As video game music is often in like a trio texture and very simple, um, at least the stuff I was influenced by, particularly the music from the original Pokemon games and mm-hmm. like that, very simple music. But um, like Vecmon would work in 8-bit actually; it would sound quite good. <laughs> it because it, it's focused on because the keys is constructed 
based on counterpoint and the video game music is kind of the same way it's just constructed and it, it can work on anything because it's not written for something specifically 8-bit just is 8-bit mm -hmm. same thing with like a planum it's a planum so they they can kind of interact we have this on the mighty studio uh, for for organists or for people who love organ music and they are connected to Vilnius University and we, we meet once a, a week and uh, and they play all kinds of music uh, usually classical organ music Bach and uh, romantic music and modern music improvise sometimes but 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 once in a while there, there comes there come people who have very strange tastes uh, and one of them was uh, engineer he's now uh, alumni alumnus of Vilnius University uh, from the physics department uh, his name is Vadim he, he is Russian uh, he has Russian heritage and he loves to play computer game music uh, so that was connected with video games mm -hmm. because video games were earlier and computer games are what's what's now and obviously I was intrigued by it and he almost doesn't read uh, sheet notations scores and mm -hmm. uh, state notation he has his own graphic notations that he uses you know letters indicate a b c d but but uh, rhythms and everything else uh, textures mm -hmm. comes from graphics and i don't even know how to read it uh, he he transcribes himself and he played uh, during our joint Undamari Studio concert his arrangements and even recorded them on YouTube, put them on YouTube. Uh, it was really wonderful. So, uh, I think, just a second. Um, we will be finishing shortly. Um, so wonderful. Um, I'm so delighted that you came to this church after Kaliningrad. You didn't um, fly back home mm -hmm. straight away, but you stayed and you you talked to me and through me to the entire world. And um, and one maybe one last question: Do you like recording your own? performances yes I do I record all of my performances I recorded every performance that I've played here in Lithuania and I've recorded my performances the last two times I was in Russia and I bring the device with me and I get weird looks in the airport but it's worth it to mm -hmm. um, to hear what I sound like because you don't really know what you sound like when you're playing do you publish them online I do yes Oh, nice. Where could people find your work online? I do have a YouTube page. Um, it's not... Um, since uh, when I was in school, I haven't really done much with it. I'm going to be starting to do more with it. If you just search Jonathan Embry Organ, um, you'll be able to find it. Wonderful. And then, uh, do you have your own website? Um, not yet. Not yet. But that would be another uh, good hub to have, maybe... You could have a blog post about you or your own blog post there, videos, mm -hmm. sort of a hub, you know, mm -hmm. where 
uh, every media information about you would come to that place. Um, although today we live in a time where where you could really stick to one particular channel that that where your listeners are, mm-hmm. where your audience is. For example, Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or um, or Steam. We have this new uh, blockchain-based uh, social media platform called Steam, and um, and which is different from uh, any other platforms out there because it is um, it is sharing their revenue with users. You know, imagine Facebook is making billions out of users' data and keeping them from themselves, and Steam is uh, not. Uh, you not using users' data, but sharing the revenue with everybody. So if if you get a like on Steam, you would get a little drop of of their currency. So it really works real real money. And on top of that, we have weekly contests for people for who like uh, organ music, and uh, they submit their organ videos, and uh, we have prizes, and uh, and in general we support them like that and people who participate really are amazed how much their motivation to practice has increased yes, motivation to practice is something that's very important and is a concern that I have as a recent graduate of a university one because while you're studying you're always concerned about the next lesson about your degree recital um, but once you're out, you need to still have that fire underneath you to continue to work and to continue to improve. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it is very difficult to find concerts um, outside of schools. You have to write hundreds and hundreds of letters and you might get one response. So you need to have something to motivate you and encourage you to practice. And I think that the contests that Vitas has, that you mm-hmm. have, I think that they are very encouraging, and I think it's a, a great thing to do. To yeah, anybody can organize contests on Facebook, for example, just the same thing, but there is no financial reward, you just get likes and that's it, right? Or if you want financial reward, outside sources have to be a little bit complicated, but they have this native currency called Steam, and it's freely distributed in terms of likes and upvotes. And um, and this is make this makes things much easier and much more user friendly. So if you have any inclination of joining uh, our contest, we have professional organs there too. So just you, I can create Steam account for you in the future, and, and you can submit the videos to YouTube and then share them on Steam, and you would be in. Wonderful. Um, so people will. I mean, uh, they will visit your YouTube channel uh, and probably search for Weckmann's recordings and, uh, and Distler's recordings. Yeah. There will be a Distler recording coming up from uh, the concert in Kaliningrad. Right now, um, if there's a recording to check out, uh, there's two. Um, would be the Chacon from De- Raymond Devlouis' third organ sonata and a recording of the Prelude and Fugue, Sir Lenome Delan, that I have on my page. Those are two good mm-hmm. recordings to start with. Nice. So thank you so much, uh, Jonathan, for your wisdom. Um, if you had the possibility to go back in time when you first started playing the organ, what would you tell yourself? What advice would you give? I would say to 
to never be discouraged, to keep, to keep, um, keep trying to find yourself and sort of, even if your voice is different than those around you, um, stay with it because that will, that's who, what will define you and that, that is what will give your music life. Wonderful. Hard to add anything to these word, wise words. Thank you so much, uh, Jonathan, and I hope we meet again. Yes, I hope we do too, and it's been a pleasure. This blog is supported by Total Organist, the most comprehensive organ training program online, where you will find courses for every area of organ playing, including technique, practice, sight reading, repertoire playing, hymn playing, improvisation, composition, music theory, and harmony, with hundreds of scores and thousands of exercises. Here is what some of the students are saying. Hugh writes, The sight reading course has helped me tremendously. Thank you very much for your SS courses and all your help. Robert writes, I found the fingerings, registration ideas and general comments to be excellent. John writes, I have found your download very helpful. It was really excellent. I have watched some of your teaching videos and when I read your instructions. I try to imagine you are there teaching me. You may feel disappointed that I am two three days behind, but I am a slow learner and I have committed to taking the time to get it right as you say. But the other night my wife commented that she had never heard me play such a detailed melody in the left hand so well. My left hand is generally poor. Robert writes. It has been a great pleasure in my life of having discovered your courses and material as well as the YouTube work of recordings. You have a calm and pleasant way of teaching. Ron writes, Hi Vidasant Osha, thank you guys. What a wonderful response to my email note to you. You've got me right, and I feel you understand my level of playing. Yes, at home and lucky that I have an organ for that reason. I am paying attention to this and I am going to try this haha no longer secret model. Yes, and I love Caesar Frank too. What is very nice about your blog podcast is that Osha and Vidas are like a Socratic dialogue and by bouncing things off of each other, so much more information comes out and is expressed. Your comments contain a wealth of information and understanding. I really appreciate this. It is very inspiring and will keep us moving forward. Would you like to receive the same or even better results that our students are getting? If so, join them at organduo.lt slash total dash organist. And of course, you will get the first month free too. You can cancel anytime. Also, if you haven't yet subscribed to receive free updates of this blog, Make sure you do that at organduo.lt. By subscribing, you will also receive free video How to Master Any Organ Composition and 10-Day Organ Playing Mini Course. This was Vidas and Osha from Secrets of Organ Playing. And remember, when you practice, miracles happen. <laughs>